Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome, history, friends, patrons, all, to When Diplomacy Fails' first ever Q&A. A few months ago, you may... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Or may not remember, I mentioned something about a Reddit, Ask Me Anything, or AMA, which is a bit different somehow to a Q&A, but since that fizzled out, I decided to bring it all to you in a format you'll probably all prefer anyway, with me reading your questions and then your answers. But wait, you may be thinking, Zach, I didn't know that there was going to be a Q&A. Well, history friend, that's because I didn't announce it over the podcast on purpose, because I wanted to see how much feedback we get just by promoting it over social media. So, in other words, Twitter, on the Facebook page, and on the Facebook group, above all, as well as some more detailed emails I've done my best 
to condense. I received some really great questions and I can't wait to share them here, but you should know that I've divided this Q&A up into three rough sections for a bit of law and order going on in this whole process. The first section takes some questions related to the current Korean War series, the second section takes questions relating to podcasting topics, and the final section takes questions relating to... Everything else. There is no hard or fast rule about what we're doing here, and it is the first time I've done this after all, so I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants, but if your question isn't here, don't fret. We can always do another Q&A if enough people here enjoy it the first time round. A final note before we actually properly get started, all of you patrons who joined us since January will be read out at the end of this show, so thanks so much for your support, and of course, for your patience. Without any further ado then, let's just do this. I will now take you all to When Diplomacy Fells' first Q&A. So, starting in the Korean War-related section of the Q&A, the first question is from Ashley West via email. Thanks for this question, Ashley. She asks, Why do you think the Korean War is considered the Forgotten War when it has so much going for it? Give me just two points or we'll be at this forever. Well, Ashley, that's probably clever since I tend to ramble, as you all well know. I think the major reason why the Korean War is considered the Forgotten War is because on the surface it kind of looks like an open and shut case. The North invaded, nothing to see here, let's move on. One less exciting point that can also be pointed to as the reason why it's considered forgotten is the fact that anyone who knows, like, even surface details about it knows that there was an awful lot of stalemate going on. Even while we managed to talk about it for 48 episodes, for two-thirds of the Korean War people were kind of just staring at one another in their trenches. Now, of course, that's not to say there wasn't an awful lot going on in the air war and all the dogfights and, of course, at the negotiating table, but for all intents and purposes, to a lot of people who don't really look under the hood or who aren't in the business of dissecting what that stalemate actually meant, it might seem a bit boring, so they might gloss over it. At least, that's my impression anyway. Okay, so the next question comes from Kent Rupel on the Facebook page. Kent asks... Why did Mao Zedong travel to meet with Stalin to renegotiate the 1945 treaty when that treaty was originally negotiated and signed with Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists? How did the treaty apply to Mao? Kent asks. Well, Kent, this is a good question. Thanks for sending it to me. And I do apologize to you guys if I didn't make the answer very clear in the original episode. The short answer to this question is that Mao went to meet Stalin because he needed his help with the war against Chiang Kai-shek and he also wanted to remove any remnants of the old unequal treaties that the Chinese had with foreign powers. As a nationalist communist, Mao was adamant that China be treated equally, and since he knew that the 1945 treaty was anything but equal, he believed it would have to be changed. As far as why he was authorised to renegotiate the treaty when it wasn't agreed to in his name in the first place, You'll remember, if you've listened to the previous episodes, that Stalin didn't actually raise this technicality as an issue during the negotiations. Instead, he tried to confound Mao with mentions of the Yalta Conference and other distractions. In the cynical post-war world, you see, 
What mattered was who was in charge. Chiang was hardly going to go to Moscow and represent all of China, whereas Mao had declared the People's Republic of China in October, and he'd removed the nationalists off the mainland the week before he went to Moscow, so he had the legitimacy of China behind him, even if it wasn't his name on the original document. I hope that answers the question, and be sure to always ask me, guys, if you think that there's some outstanding questions or you're not really sure what's going on in the Korean War. I'd be happy, of course, to answer. The next question is from Lewis Jones via Twitter. He asks, what part of the Korean War do you find most fascinating? So this is a bit of a hard one to answer because it's hard to pick one aspect of it above all, but I'm going to do my best because that was the question. So to me, the cynical approach that Stalin and Truman took towards the conflict started off as really, really shocking, but in time I came to see this approach as really fascinating. If you believe my research, guys, then the Korean War represented to both of these men one of the best, purest examples of realpolitik yet seen in the 20th century. So now we move on to questions that are more related to actual podcasting. To those of you not really keeping a pace with the Korean War, I didn't want to bombard you guys with too many questions on the Korean War in case you were all bored. So these questions apply to pretty much everything going on in Wendy Plosivelle's podcasting life, so I hope you find them some way interesting. The first question comes from Luke Russell, and he asked this question in the Facebook group. He asks, what have been your top three topics that you have covered in order from numbers one to three? Well, to answer this, I think starting off just listing them, my top three would have to be the Franco-Dutch War first, then Britain Goes to War second, and then 1916 third. All of those series to me ended really satisfactorily. Some of them even had pretty cool music, and with the Franco-Dutch War in particular, I was really able to go into loads of detail with a war that's really quite unknown today, and that was very, very satisfying. With Britain Goes to War, and may surprise you to see that on this list, But with Britain Goes to War, I really enjoyed looking at domestic British politics, whoever thought I would say that. And I think because I surprised myself with this, I've really come to look back on it fondly. Although I appreciate we've kind of put it to the wayside for a while, and I know that it's not everyone's favourite, but in time, perhaps, hopefully, in fact I'd like to, we will come back to Britain Goes to War. There's a whole lot of other things to talk about in that series, so someday, hopefully, we will. As far as 1916 is concerned, you see, that series was a very personal one, and thanks to the satisfying way I was able to conclude it, and your guys' great feedback, of course, it all seemed to run together like a satisfying kind of podcasting dream. So I have you guys to thank for that, and as a result, it's up there in my top three. So the next question is from Peter Hammerston on the Facebook page, and he asks the question that, Out of everything I've covered on the show, what's my favourite example of both terrible diplomacy and brilliant diplomacy? This is a tough one, obviously, as are all these questions that ask me to single out a specific thing, mostly because the last few years have been kind of a blur and I can't pick out very specific examples, but that double team against the Dutch that the French and English engineered before the Franco-Dutch War still stands out to me as breathtakingly cynical, but also immensely juicy and interesting. Just seeing the way the French and the English schemed behind the scenes, I still think to this day is really fascinating, especially since Johann de Witt, the poor man, suspected that it was going on, but couldn't really do anything about it. 
I think the worst diplomacy award, like this is probably a predictable answer, but it must go to everyone involved in the July crisis, since pretty much everything that could go wrong did and nobody made any great strides to stop it. I am pointed towards that episode of Blackadder where Rowan Atkinson says with a surprising amount of accuracy that people fought the First World War because it was just too much effort not to fight one. So the next question is from Margaret Moody and comes from the Facebook page. She asks, how do you decide what to cover? Well, Margaret, thanks for the question, but to you I would ask, how does anyone decide anything? As someone who finds it somewhat difficult making decisions, the whole process for me actually selecting new series that I'm going to cover is surprisingly not that technical. I read a lot, basically, and sometimes topics will catch my eye, but more often than not I'm grabbed by weird tangents or rabbit holes and I merge on the other side thinking, ooh, this is great, I should share this, and then next thing you know I'm 40 episodes in and the Polish miniseries has become its own podcast, but... That said, I do keep an eye out for centenaries, as 1916 and the July Crisis Project has shown. Versailles will also be another example of this opportunism. But I'd like to think that I do keep an ear out for what you guys want too, so do always ask. For the record, the Korean War series began as a suggestion from my wonderful wife, but it was also confirmed by a few listeners who sent me similarly worded requests. So, the next question is from, and sorry Debbie if I murder your surname here even though I've seen it several times, Debbie Gospodarek in the Facebook group asks, adding more legs to the previous question in the process, how do I know where to start when I do choose a series, what to include or what to discard, etc.? A good way to answer this question, Debbie, is to look at what I did with the Korean War. As I said when I was starting that, I didn't really know where to start, so I just started at a point that I was interested in and worked from there. That was kind of where the Cold War crash course came from. I started with the Cold War in Europe because it was interesting to me, and then next thing I located some threads that led to the Korean War, and I pulled on a few of these threads, and then 48 episodes later, here I am. Of course, it does help when you have one major book as a guide, and you can bolster this source then with several other books and articles. This is how I attempt to stay on track and avoid too many tangents. I recommend this strategy for those of you starting big projects, maybe starting a thesis or that kind of thing yourself. Have one baseline source that you can always follow the story along and then have other interesting, perhaps less directly related sources that you can add further flesh onto the bones with. Although I do hate to discard things, I don't actually remember ever writing something and then completely getting rid of it. Sometimes I actually add in anecdotes just for the heck of it, and since you guys haven't complained, it can't be going too bad. So the next question is by Dylan DeRoset from the Facebook page, and he asks, Zach, when does the 10,000 episode series on the Second World War start? Well, Dylan, how much time do you have? (sighs) You see... My big issue with the Second World War is exactly that. There's so much I'd love to do with it. There's so much potential there. And even though I do subscribe to the idea that there's plenty of room in a given genre for everyone, I think it would dominate us for years if we sought to tackle it in the style that I have planned. I really ought to ask around, but would you guys mind terribly if I covered World War II, even if it took ages? I'm aware that some of you guys are just sick of the sight of it, so I don't want to send you all away. I could compromise, of course, and ignore the Pacific Theatre or the African Theatre or something, but would that be bad form? What if I ignored any mention of technology as uh, just a way to keep things different? 
We'll just have to see, but either way, we won't be starting this hypothetical series for another few years at least. So Ian Perkins in the Facebook group asks, Is there any historical topic you will just not touch under any circumstances? Well, Ian, the easy answer to this, as some of you may know already, is American Civil War. Oh, that's not its proper name, I hear some of you say. Well, I don't give a monkeys, is my reply. You see, I have comparatively little interest in American history when compared to European history, etc. So I feel it's best to leave the considerable experts who are already dabbling very well in that field to their own devices. Let's just say that covering my own national history was stressful enough and leave it at that. So the next question is from John Dunn and he sent this via email, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. He asks, will you ever cover those wars in South America during the 19th century when pretty much all of Latin America was at war with one another and the diplomacy became so epically tangled? Well, the answer to this is yes, John, I would love to sometime. The only problem is I really have difficulty finding any good English language sources on these series of wars. They're, as far as I remember, they're called the Wars of the Pacific, I think, but they essentially involved everyone in Latin America, and they're absolutely fascinating. So if anyone knows of any sources out there, any good, reliable sources, do send them my way, and I'd be happy to look into them, even just for the sake of a WDF Thinks episode. The next question is from Jared White, also via email, and he asks... Since you're obsessed with him and will soon be doing a series on him, what books or other sources would you recommend on Bismarck? Well, Jared, you may or may not be surprised at how often I get asked this. A good place to start, as always, is Jonathan Steinberg's Bismarck Life. And if you twin this with Edward Crankshaw's book on Bismarck, which is also available in deliciously read audiobook format, then you'll be doing well. Other than that, I have in my possession two trilogies, The first is the three-part volumes of Bismarck's memoirs, which is easy enough to get. I just got them on Amazon. The second trilogy, and I'll correct myself if I'm wrong on this. It's on my shelf somewhere, but I can't be bothered to go and find it, is by Otto Flans. And I think think that's his name. If I've gotten that wrong, that's kind of embarrassing. But it's a three-part trilogy on... Bismarck in the context of the unification, consolidation and expansion of Germany. It starts from 1815 and works all the way up to basically Bismarck's dismissal so or resignation as it were. So it's obviously chock full of immense details. It makes her fascinating, a very heavy reading, but most people you'd be fine just sticking to the first two. Prepare to laugh out loud though with some of the Bismarckian quotes, as always. So another question via email, John Dill asks, you've often said that you're open to helping new history podcasters get off the ground, but have you ever considered making a detailed or dedicated set of guidelines, maybe in a blog post for them to follow? Well, as a matter of fact, John, I have considered doing that and I'll definitely tackle it if I receive enough interests and thereafter maybe a few extra days in the week to write these blog posts. You may notice that the blog The Vassal State blog has fallen to the wayside a bit. I'm still very fond of the Vassal State and I definitely plan to make use of it in the future, so we will be resurrecting it soonish. I'm just really snowed under with stuff at the moment. So, Rick Hansen, another question via email. Hello, Rick, and thanks for this question. You are asking me today, what would you consider a good day's work in terms of your production schedule? Right, now this might make you feel ill or very surprised, depending on who you are, but 
in the last few months, I've gotten it down to a relatively comfortable production schedule. And to explain what I mean, before When Diplomacy Fails Remastered, I was kind of trucking along, not really planning too far ahead, but because of the planning I had to do for that since that series, since that massive project has happened, I've kind of been not able to switch off the massive production levels. Maybe this is unhealthy or maybe not, but to me now, a good day's work normally consists of a written script. In other words, this as my baseline, if I can pump out the 10 to 14 page document in one day, and that yes is including footnotes and research and all that kind of thing, then that's a huge boost and a great place to start right there. For the record, I normally aim for between four and five scripts a week, and script writing is what I really measure as successful or kind of unsuccessful production for the week, but the recording and editing process is what I really find challenging to balance. By rights, and especially considering what I have planned for the future with podcasting and history and when diplomacy fails, etc., I really should be recording at least one episode a day and editing the same, but I've never really been able to stick to this in practice. The answer is, of course, not considering what books I might have to write at the time, since there's always something. I've got to write the Thirty Years' War book, and then the book about the wars between 1650 and 1700 after that, and this Poland is not yet lost will probably be made into a book, and all sorts of things to do. There's also things like I could be doing a collaboration with someone else or any other potting exercise. Generally, though, a script a day makes Zach rather gay. So Jamie Lennox via Twitter asks, What are you reading right now and what are you working on right now? Right now, Jamie, I am reading Barry Turner's Suez 1956 which is a very readable tome. This actually answers your second question rather handily, as I'm working on the second portion of the 1956 series, which will examine that eventful year through two major story arcs. I am really excited about the series, 1956, and it is dropping in a few weeks for patrons at the $5 level, with a twist that may interest and surprise you. I'm saying nothing yet, but let's just say 1956 is gonna be good. Okay, so now we're moving to the general history slash personal life-related questions. As you can see, the definitions of the questions are very, very strict and strenuous, but either way, Tyler Ferris on the Facebook page opens this section up by asking, what got you first interested in history? Thanks for this question, Tyler, and thank you also for being such a lovely patron. Wink. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. You see, I first remember being interested in history other than the different times when I watched the History Channel on and off, the main time that sticks out to me was when I was reading about the outbreak of the First World War in my secondary or high school textbook, and I, of course, being a history nerd, read very far ahead to the end of the history textbook, and I found out all about the First World War and why it happened. I really thought, and I still do, of course, thought it was fascinating how Each of these powers went to war for their own reasons, and I remember finding the guns of August on Sky Movies, because, yeah, apparently Barbara Tuckman's book was made into a film for some reason, but don't ask. Anyway, I was watching it, and I did watch it several, several times. Even though I've come to disagree with the commonly parroted narrative of why the First World War broke out, as you know, the whole process of everyone going to war and marching into the apocalypse and the old era basically dying off just... It's just so fascinating and there's so much there. 
I guess you could say things kind of came full circle, and since the July Crisis in effect was what really first grabbed me, and the July Crisis Anniversary Project was what first made When Diplomacy Fails go places. The next question is from HistoryPod on Twitter. HistoryPod asks, What single day in history would you most like to be part of, and why? Well, I think considering my Cold War, Korean War kind of focus at the moment, and seeing what the likes of the Hungarians and the Poles, etc. went through under Soviet rule, I think that being in Berlin at the moment that the Berlin Wall fell, that would be pretty special, since there was so much relief and joy and optimism flowing around back then, and it did seem like anything was possible. If we could only inject some of those feelings into today's world, I think today's world would be a much better place. Coming in very conveniently is Graham Kelly on Twitter, who adds more legs to the previous question by asking if I could be at any famous moment in history just to watch and take in the atmosphere, what would it be, and would I use my presence in this particular moment to end a historical controversy or to satisfy my curiosity? Well, sorry, Graham, but I'm going to be awkward and answer the last part of your question first. You see, I'd be far too afraid of messing things up to attempt to change anything, so I think I'll just watch from the sidelines. I would love in a weirdly morbid way to be there as the First World War is declared and the crowds are gathering in Berlin or London or what have you and they find out about it and start to cheer. If only because I find that celebration as the war was declared, like, darkly fascinating. I'm not really sure why, I'm sure I can't be the only one. If possible, of course, I'd like to prevent the First World War from happening, but it's highly unlikely that anyone would listen to me at the upper statesman level if I did try to persuade them not to pull the trigger. In any case, if I was there in time, maybe I would try and bring Gavrilo Princip to the ground before he fired a shot at poor old Franz Ferdinand. That'd be the ideal, but knowing me, I'd probably get arrested by mistake, and then Gavrilo Princip would try for a third time against Franz Ferdinand somewhere else, and he'd probably still be successful as well, knowing how wonderful Franz Ferdinand's security was. So Mark Wright then asks on Twitter a very, very important question, because it is to do with Guinness. Mark asks, if you could have a Guinness with any historical figure and ask them any question... Who would you choose and what would you ask? Well, Mark, I would sit down with Bismarck without question. But because of my immense fanboyish obsession with him, it's very unlikely I'd be able to say anything in particular. But if I did manage to put out any words at all into the space as his immense presence was sitting before me, probably drinking the Guinness in one single gulp, I would probably say something along the lines of, Where did you get all your energy from? I don't know. I mean, what do you even ask someone like Bismarck? Where do you even begin to ask questions to Bismarck? I think I would ask him what he thinks of current political trends, maybe, and see if he can give anyone any advice. I mean, if he's having Guinness with me, can he leave the bar and travel around, I don't know, Ireland or Europe or the world? Does he have to leave after one Guinness? How long do I have Bismarck for? Can I use him for anything? This opens up so many possibilities, Mark. I mean, really, there's so much we could do with Bismarck in today's world. I think we should just kind of place him somewhere, maybe as a, not a shrine, but somewhere where people can just kind of go to to talk to him and get advice. He'd probably try and take over the world or something like that, and I recognize that sounds very like Indiana Jones in a weird kind of way, but there you go. I'm 
I wouldn't guarantee that just because he's been dead for over 100 years, his ambitions have completely subsided, so we'd have to watch out there. Anyway, Ian Herniter in the Facebook group asks, Where do you fall on the great man slash structuralist debate as the primary driver of history? On the one hand, there's Bismarck, but on the other, he did say the following. A statesman cannot create anything himself. He must wait and listen until he hears the steps of God sounding through events, then leap up and grasp the hem of his garment. Well, Ian, this is an excellent question, and I think the best way to answer is to throw Bismarck's quote straight back in his face, since he was amusingly notorious for making great efforts behind the scenes, only to claim to his wife and others thereafter that he had simply been selected or chosen by fate for the latest task. We will see a great deal of this in our Age of Bismarck series, but to answer your question properly, to me, I think the old saying, events, dear boy, events, is a whopper lie on a grand scale. Events, short of natural disasters, don't happen without heavy human involvement. And as far as great men go, I think it's impossible to deny that great men, just like groups of extremely dumb and short-sighted men or women, can have huge impacts on history whether they know it or not. As usual, I would argue that it's a bit in terms of both, of great man slash structuralism, but I think it's impossible to deny the force that great men make in history, be they good or evil or mixtures of both. Sometimes the right guy at the right time is all that's needed to push history into a new age, or back to the Stone Age, if we're not careful. So Kevin Lay on the Facebook group asks... Frederick the Great or the Great Elector? Now, Kevin, that is just cruel. What a cruel sentence. Just those few words, and you've already put me in something of conundrum. You see, two of my top three figures in German history, behind Bismarck, of course, are Frederick the Great and the Great Elector, and I've never really been able to decide whether I prefer Frederick the Great or the Great Elector. So, who do I even choose? I mean, Frederick the Great is the obvious choice, sure, but... I think I'm going to have to shock the world and choose the great elector. Simply because, if nothing else, Freddy wouldn't have been able to do anything that he did do without the great elector taking Brandenburg in 1640 and making it something incredible by 1680. I think it's because I don't believe that enough people emphasise how impressive a feat this was today or how much Germany as a state owes to the great elector's legacy that I have to go with the underdog, so to speak, even while Freddy was an undoubted genius and an utterly fascinating man for sure. Now, as the final question here, guys, we're nearly wrapping things up on our first ever Q&A, but... Wendy McAvee-Kasker asks on the Facebook group, Will you be coming to the USA, Zach? Because you have many listeners here. You know what? I have actually received a few very generous offers from some listeners already, Wendy. And I do find it immensely flattering that any of you guys would want to meet me. You see, I'm really not much fun in person. Just ask poor old David Lund, who came all the way to Ireland and had to buy me steak and two Guinnesses before I'd even say anything. This, of course, isn't true, but to answer your question, Wendy, I would love to make the trip, and I would love to meet you guys in America. I really, really would. I think it'd be so much fun. Great crack, as we say over here. Can't speak for what the Guinness would be like in America, but we can take that risk. The problem, well, not really the problem, but the issue before we do anything like that is to get the most out of this theoretical trip, and so that I meet as many of you guys as possible, 
I would have to make sure that we plan it in a good bit of advanced time so that I hit the major cities and meet the optimum number of history friends. If anyone would like to help out with this planning, I'm not saying that it's definitely going ahead because money issues and all that jazz, but I'd be all ears. And thanks again so much for wanting to meet with little old me. Alrighty guys, that is the end of the Q&A. So thanks so much for all your questions. Our first Q&A is coming to an end. I don't know, how do you really end these things? I'm not really sure. But I hope you guys have enjoyed this strange experiment. If I get enough people saying they liked it, and I hope you did like it, then we'll absolutely do another one. So don't be worrying or don't be fretting if I missed your question here. All that's left to do now is to read out the patrons for the last two months. So let's go ahead and do it before we say adieu. So the patrons starting from the 3rd of January are Richard Russell, Diplomat Shadia Liu, Diplomat Sebastian, Diplomat Brian Shalkowski, Diplomat Alexander McVeigh Abbott, Diplomat Ada, Embassy Intern Matt, Embassy Intern Jeff E. Edelbrock, Diplomat Charles Hartford, Attaché Paul Ryder, Diplomat Michael Day, Diplomat Scott Oleren Shaw, Diplomat Bill McCabe, Embassy Intern Adam Von Ham, Envoy Extraordinaire How's it going, Adam? Charles Kubacek, or Kubacek, apologies Student of Diplomacy Tom Dibich, Diplomat Robert McKay, Diplomat Chris, Diplomat Chaba Suto, Diplomat Stephen Bradley, Diplomat, Vladimir Lukes, Embassy Intern, Jer O'Brien, What's the Crack Jer, Diplomat, Eduardo Gill, Student of Diplomacy, Dylan Murphy, Diplomat, Kent Rupel, Diplomat, Richard Schwartz, Diplomat, Matt Stewart, Student of Diplomacy, and Charlie Ferranti, you just got in there in time, Diplomat. Alrighty guys, those are the patrons. You have been a wonderful history friend, or perhaps even a patron. My name is Zach, and this has been the first ever Q&A. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all on Monday. Yes, I'll be seeing you all soon. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.